Good evening. So good to be with you. It's so good to uh, sing with you this night. Um, would you open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9? Isaiah chapter 9. That's where we'll be. <clears throat> when you're there, would you say amen? Amen. 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 I want to begin by asking you guys a question. Have you ever been a tag along to a party you weren't personally invited to? You know what I mean? You ever been a tag along to a party you weren't personally invited to? You know, somebody drags you along to come, hey, come, come to the party, right? And you're a tag along because you're not personally acquainted with the person being celebrated. If you know that experience, then you know that it's entirely possible for a person to hear and see and smell and partake in all of the festivities and all of the hoopla and still miss the reason for the excitement. Brothers and sisters, we don't want that to be your experience tonight. We want, and that's why we want our, our meeting tonight to help share with you our reasons for excitement about Jesus' coming. And so that's what we intend to do. And so this is the fifth and final part of our series. We've been doing an Advent series that lasts uh, four weeks. And all we've been doing is we've just been seeking to work through several different passages that point to the Messiah's coming and our need for him. And if you've been following along, uh, you've seen from the beginning that we saw in the fall in Genesis chapter 3 that our ancestors, Adam and Eve, brought untold trouble on themselves and on creation and on everybody, right, because of the decision that they made. And we saw in the very same passage, though, the one that we read today, that God is intended to rectify this breach through the birth of a son of Mary. We also saw in Exodus chapter 33 that the God of Advent was not willing to abandon his broken people. He was not content to leave us to ourselves, but instead he graciously shows himself to Moses and he reveals his ways to God's people. He also pledges uh, to lend his presence to his people in order that they might uh, make it to the land that he promised. Not long after that, we read uh, a few weeks later that things have gone from bad to worse and from ugly to uglier. As things began to snowball and as sin began to take hold in Israel's heart, by the time we get to Isaiah, God has decided to turn his face from his beloved people because they and their rulers have repeatedly chosen uh, to ignore his ways and reject his truth. And so by the time we get to Isaiah 8, Isaiah 8 closes on a very grim note. He says, because they refuse to listen to him and to his law and his messenger, they will now experience darkness and distress because of that decision. They'll experience invasion by Assyria, who was supposed to be their ally. But God's intended last word was never meant to be one of judgment. God's intended last word was never meant to be one of judgment. You see, God is determined to end the gloom and increase the joy of his wayward people. And he does this through the child he's given us. God is determined to end the gloom and increase the joy of his wayward people. And he does this through the saving son that he gives to us. And so this evening, I want you to see that as we look at Isaiah chapter 9. And um, when we're last together, we began looking at uh, the promise of gloom's decrease and joy's increase. I want to return there for a minute. And so this is the promise of gloom's decrease and joy's increase. 
Now, when we last left off, we saw that God was promising that one day he would both elevate and glorify his people along with the Gentile territories. But the question is, how would he, how would he raise and elevate this humbled people? How would he lift them up? Verse 2 says, the people who walk in the darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shined, shone. And so we saw that God intends to remove the gloom and restore the honor of his fallen people by acting upon and shining upon them uh, people who weren't largely looking for him. They weren't seeking him. And so he does this by pursuing them uh, and sending this enigmatic, illuminating, messianic figure, this light. And through this light, he sends, uh, he, he, he takes away the darkness, and he opens the eyes of the blind. And through his presence and ministry, he, he illumines and he clarifies and he reveals and he converts God's people. And so the coming and presence of this ministry of illumination, verse 3 says, causes the nation to swell. Look down at verse 3. He says, you have multiplied the nation and you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. And so in this verse, Isaiah lauds the fact that God's future redemptive act will have a multiplying effect on the nation. He says, this great work will cause its territories and borders to expand and its population will increase. And he says, because of all this, the nation begins overflowing with joy. And Isaiah likens this, the intensity of the people's joy, to the joy that one experiences at harvest time or the joy that one experiences when you're in a military, when you, uh, when you conquer someone and you take in the spoils. And so what he's talking about here is the joy of abundance. He says, when this future event happens, the people will be hit with a joy of abundant provision. And so a couple times in the Old Testament, one of the things you get a peek into what this looks like. And... Um, 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 16, we read about David going on this, uh, David getting into a military conflict with these raiders, right? And following his victory, we read that David and his whole crew, they, they spread out in the land and they begin to celebrate. And it says that the text tells us that they were eating and they were drinking and they were dancing uh, because of the great spoil that they had recovered and they had taken. And the point being, this was not a low-level joy. This was not your coffee shop contentment. Y'all know what I'm talking about? You know you'd be chilling in the coffee shop feeling good. <laughs> this is not that. This was an exuberant joy. They relished the fact that God had generously met his people with victory and abundance. And so they rejoice, they dance, they cheer, they feast, and they celebrate the work that God has done. And so Isaiah is saying here that God will soon do a restorative work that will bring about the same kind of rejoicing among his people. And so we've just seen the promise of glooms decrease and joys increase. Now I want to turn your attention to the reasons for glooms decrease and joys increase. Now I want you to see the reasons for glooms decrease and joys increase. Put another way, why should your joy increase at the sight of this sun? Why should your joy increase at the sight of this sun? And the first answer is because his coming spells liberation from the oppressor. Because his coming spells liberation from the oppressor. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now there's one thing I want you to notice here. I want you to notice this passage mentions three instruments. Isaiah mentions the burden of, of, the, burden of um, the yoke of burden, the staff of the shoulder, and the rod of the oppressor. Now all three of these things are instruments or tools of oppression. 
right? The yoke of burden symbolizes the, the burden of involuntary solitude, uh, servitude. The yoke of burden, in this case, is the instrument of forced labor. It's the yoke you put on someone to force them to work. The staff of the shoulder or the scepter points to the authority that one has to tyrannically rule over another person, right? And then finally, the rod of the oppressor is the taskmaster's rod. Uh, It's the club that a taskmaster uses to intimidate and to abuse and to beat those into submission, and so, uh, when we, uh, when we, if we were to think about these terms in more contemporary things, in, in, in terms of what we know in our day and in our culture, this would be like God saying to 19th century African slaves that he would shatter the shackles that constrained their, their necks and their hands, that he would burn the whips that tattered their backs, and that he would destroy the nooses that hung their necks. And so the nation of Israel is rightly pictured in this passage as being overjoyed because God is here promising that he will one day shatter the instruments of oppression against it. You see that? Attached to this idea is also the idea that uh, Israel's enemies will not always rule over her. On and again, she had wrestled with all of these neighboring people constantly in conflict. But he's saying a day is coming when God will break the hold of their oppression and defeat them. And he'll do it in spectacular fashion. Uh, And then notice, he says, it'll be reminiscent of the the battle at Midian. Now, this battle at Midian is one of the most popular and well-known stories in the Old Testament. I think you guys just went over it in Judges. Uh, It speaks of a a, a dramatic event of God's saving deliverance. And it's mentioned several times. And part of, in uh, Judges chapter 6 and 7, Isaiah, in that context... In that episode, uh, the people of Israel had begun to do evil in the sight of the Lord. They forsake his covenant, kind of like what we're going through right now. And as a result of this, God chastens them by pulling his protective hand away. And he allows Midian to overpower them for seven years. And during this time, Midian is an overpowering and, and imposing military force. Judges tells us that they seem to have endless camels and endless soldiers. They were like sand on the seashore, he says, the, the writer of Judges says. And so during that time, the people had so intimidated and terrorized Israel that Israelites began to hide in caves, and they began to kind of duck and dodge them. But And also the other thing that happens is every year, as they would plant their foods and prepare for the harvest, uh, they would plant their foods and get ready to go out when harvest comes, and the Midianites would come with overwhelming force and take all of their stuff and take all of their food and leave them without anything to eat. And so all of this causes Israel to become desperate, uh, and so that they call out to the Lord, and the Lord responds by sending them a spirit-empowered deliverer by the name of Gideon. And God uses Gideon to dramatically and supernaturally rout these Midianites and all their forces with a humble group of 300. And so Isaiah is saying that what God is going to do is going to be like that. In a similar way, he's saying that just as God delivered Israel supernaturally and supernaturally defeated this oppressive force, so God will do a similar work during this promise. And so this means that God will one day shatter the power of people to oppress his people. And he will also break the rod and staff of Assyria and of any other oppressor who comes against them. And so again, why should your joy increase at the sight of this son? We just answered because Uh, His coming spells liberation from the oppressor. The second thing I want you to see is because his coming spells the end of battle tumult. His coming spells the end of battle tumult. Look at verse 5. For the boot of trampling of the trampling were in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, to uh, to explain the second reason why we should be overjoyed at the sight of the sun, Isaiah uses images. 
He uses this picture, and it's very vivid. He says, God's people will rejoice because God will do away with the trampling of boots for war. In other words, he's saying marching soldiers for war will be a thing of the past. This will not always be, right? He's saying, and this is something that Israel had unfortunately known all too well. And so God is promising here that every boot would be burned and every garment or uniform that stained in blood would be burned as fuel for the fire. And so this means that war will become obsolete and a thing of the past. And God will do this for his people, not just bringing uh, personal peace, but he'll bring universal peace. Notice every, every in both of those contexts. And Isaiah, this coincides with what Isaiah chapter 2 says, where God promises a day when God will himself reign on earth. He says he will reign on earth deciding disputes between nations. And it says, as a result of his reign, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. In other words, the rule of God comes to earth. There will be peace when that happens. There will be no more war. And people will get rid of their war clothes. They will repurpose their swords and their knives for other things. There will no longer be a need for them. There will be the, the, the firearm that you keep to protect yourself will not be necessary any further. And so, again, this is one of the reasons for joy. No longer will, will we have to live under the threat of persecution or oppression or invasion. And all of this is going to happen because of the person who comes in the next verse. And so again, why should your joy increase at the sight of this son? We just answered because his coming spells liberation from the oppressor. And two, his coming, because his coming spells the end of battle tumult. And the third and final reason for this is because his coming spells the rule of God with us. His coming spells the rule of God with us. Verse 6, for to us, a child is born and a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And, the name, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so now Isaiah rounds out that third and final reason for Israel's increased gladness. And the people of the nation are overjoyed because the child is given to them. The son is born for them. But notice, though he's born of ordinary means, he bears an unusual, uh, unique responsibility. The text says that the government will one day sit on his shoulders, meaning he will bear the responsibility to rule. Verse 6 kind of declares these four titles or names that he'll be called by. The first is Wonderful Counselor or literally uh, a wonder of a counselor, meaning that he will excel in wisdom and understanding. And this wisdom will express itself in his wise rule in government and governance. Um, and this is especially important during this time where, it, where Israel is bereft of this. The second title given to him is the title of Mighty God. Now, in Scripture, this phrase, Mighty God, is uniquely given to God, the God of Israel. And it emphasizes his divine strength and capability. In the Old Testament, um, it speaks to God's ability to save his beloved people. It points to his power to repay evildoers. And it speaks to the fact that he is a powerful and mighty warrior against his foes. In Isaiah chapter 10, we see that a remnant will later return to the mighty God. And so this reveals that this child who becomes king will not just be an exceptional man. He won't just be a great guy. 
but he will himself represent God's presence with us. And in Scripture, many men are called mighty, right? Many men are called mighty, but none are called mighty God. And so this figure of speech is reserved for God alone. This is telling us that the one who we praise is a good man, but he's more than that. He's also divine. Next thing he says, Isaiah says, is he'll be called everlasting father. And in this time, uh, rulers were known as, known as uh, the father of their people. And so to be a father uh, to the people was to be an affectionate, caring, benevolent ruler. In Isaiah 22, 22, uh, we read of Eliakim, who's a, a guy who follows after, um, follows after Ahaz. And we read that he would be given the throne of David and that he would become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and Judah. Now, we all know that benevolent rulers, they come and they go, right? They have their time, they're day in the sun, and then they also bounce off the scene. But notice what he says about this king. He says he will be an everlasting father. His rule and reign won't be interrupted or stymied by death or by sickness, but he will be forever a benevolent king. And so finally, Isaiah says the Messiah will also be called the Prince of Peace. This title speaks to the kind of king he will be. And calling him a prince of peace, the text is telling us that he will be one who administers and brings peace. He will be one who serves to reconcile God and man and also men to men, undoing what has been broken since Genesis 3. And then he goes on, and so this guy will come and he'll bring peace to a world-dominated and ravaged people of Israel and world. Verse 7, and of the increase of of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. And so this next verse quickly speaks to the scope, the duration, and the certainty of of this Messiah's rule. Isaiah explains that this king will have an ever-increasing dominion and one that has peace without end, meaning he will rule in, in an undisturbed peace. And in this way, he fulfills God's promise to David that he promised David in 2 Samuel 7 that he'll have someone to sit on his throne forever. And so Jesus here becomes the final king. He becomes that king of kings who will rule forever in righteousness and justice, taking over the throne of David and fulfilling what God had promised so many times. So if I were to summarize to you what he will do, He will expand the domain of God's people to the ends of the earth, intentionally shining light on those in darkness. He will establish himself as a Davidic ruler forever. He will shatter the instruments of oppression, replacing them with gentle, light, soul-saving, a soul-saving yoke of fatherly rule. He'll be characterized by compassionate rule for our best. And and four, God will uh, do away with the trampling of boots for war by bringing universal peace. Now, when you put all that together, what we're really saying is the one who is coming, he is going to bring in the rule and reign of God on earth. You see that? He is going to bring in the rule and reign of God on earth. And that's why we celebrate this child. That's why we dance and we sing and we read and we remind ourselves because the one who's coming is the one who ushers in God's rule. He ushers in literally the kingdom of God on earth. That's what we look forward to. He's beginning, uh, when Jesus came, he's beginning that work of fulfillment that will be consummated at the end. And so that's what we look forward to, and that's what we celebrate tonight. And so tonight, would you join me as we continue to celebrate that, that rule? Um, we're going to begin lighting candles. 
And uh, we're going to sing Silent Night. And so please join in with us with that. So I'll pray and we'll, we'll, we'll get ready to do that. Father, we come to you. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you are the one who ushers in the, the rule and reign of God. Lord, we thank you that none of us could do it. Hezekiah couldn't do it. No man could do it. It was only you. So we thank you, Father, for identifying with us, becoming a man, and going to the cross for our sins. We thank you for this. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.